Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I've got Jock Campbell in the beach shack. Now, he tells his story when he was the head strength conditioner and trainer for the Australian cricket team during the Hayden, Gilchrist, Ponting, McGrath and the Shane Warne era. It's an amazing story. You can hear in his voice when I mention the death of Jane McGrath and also when we talk about the sudden passing of Rod Marsh, Andrew Simons, and the great Shane Warne, who were all very close mates to Jock. Jock also talks about Jock Athletic. Uh, he develops and mentors young athletes and turns them into national champions. He has got a great program uh, over there at Cronulla and also has teamed up with Mitchell Johnson to do high-performance coaching, improving fast bowlers' techniques. So now let's sit back and have a listen to my chat with Jock. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure to have Jock Campbell. Now he's got a good story. Uh, he was with the Australian cricket team as the trainer and conditioner and also uh, lives over there at Cronulla. How are you, mate? Yeah, beauty, mate. I'm going great. Yep, those days were a long time ago with the Australian <laughs> team. <laughs> Can't even remember them. Well, mate, let's go back even further and uh, and talk about where you grew up and, and how was that? Mate, I grew up at uh, a place called Connells Point, which is near Blakehurst. It was fantastic. Had a great family life and uh, my brothers got me into surfing when we were about 14 and so played a lot of cricket and, and on Sundays was the only day we could get down to the beach. So they'd drive us down to the beach and... We did our best out in the surf, so just loved the water and the waves and the, and the sand and cricket field. So two loves of my life. Oh, my wife as well. Sorry, got to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> got to throw that one just in case you just in case you listen to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, in case she's the one person listening to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, mate, you're saying uh, you know it's about what a 15 minute drive to there. You you did what we known as a Westie. It was just on the border there, was it, to Granada? <laughs> Yeah, I had to convince my mates from school that I wasn't a Billy um, <laughs> and told them it was 15 minutes drive. It was more like 20, 25 minutes. But um, yeah, now a lot of my friends are from that way and they tell me, oh, it's only 12 minutes to get here. But no, <laughs> yes. So I got away with that slightly. <laughs> so as you said, growing up, you did a lot of surfing and cricket and, you know, they were your passions. So did, did you play a lot of cricket as a kid? Yeah, played a lot. Oh, I was just obsessed with it from nine or ten years old and played in the backyard with my brothers until I was you, you're allowed to play. I think you're only allowed to play about age ten back then. And um yeah, even we mum and dad bought us a pool when, when I was just turning twelve and we weren't allowed to go into it until we're all together and I had cricket on the Saturday morning. And uh so my brothers and sister were waiting for me at home and 
Uh, then the team that was playing after us said, oh, we're short. Can you fill in? So I was the whole day playing cricket. So I had to wait the whole day <laughs> to go in. So, yes, I, I loved cricket, played a lot of it. I think played till I was about 27 and, yeah, massive passion of mine. So did you go on to play grade cricket? Yeah, played about 10 years of grade and, and I, I suppose – the only thing I did that was any good was my first grade debut for Sutherland. Glenn McGrath was the opening bowler and he got picked for New South Wales team. So I got rung. I was at my mate Evan Atkins' mum's wake on the Friday night and you could imagine your mate uh, mum dying in those days. The wake was probably a fairly big affair and I uh, got rung by the club president and said, you're in for McGrath tomorrow. You're, you're replacing him. He's going up for New South Wales and you're – and I didn't think of it till recently, but I go, yeah, that seems like a fair swap. Uh, so, <laughs> so that's about the uh, only thing I did in grade that was uh, ever impressive. So, so were you a bowler or, or more a batter? No, a bowler, medium pace bowler. I was a batsman early on, but that sort of faded pretty quickly. Um, I went up more for my bowling than my batting. <laughs> Well, mate, let's now talk about – now we're talking about cricket. Let's let's get on to the um, – when you're the head strength conditioner and trainer for the Australian cricket team. Now, that was probably the era that I you – know, I love cricket, played cricket a fair bit as a, as a younger kid. But then that era was, you know, a, an amazing era of Hayden, Gilchrist, Ponty, McGrath, Warren. Like, what was that like being involved with a team like that? Mate, it was fantastic. I mean, I, I was um, – I went to uni, I did – Everything was directed at cricket. So there were no jobs in cricket in those days and I just expected, look, I'd have to do a lot of volunteer work. I'll, I'll work in fitness but, you know, cricket and working with cricketers and runners was my passion. And, and so just when we – cricket had just become professional, sort of really professional sort of late 90s and that was when I started getting involved with New South Wales and then um, they were full professional by the time I got involved in, in the year 2000 with the – the Aussie side, and mate, they were fantastic. You know, they wanted to do well. Money was into it, but it hadn't really. It, you know, they were very appreciative that they were getting getting money to play the game they loved, and they worked so hard. And that, and they were the world champions for all that time for a reason. And they were the great players for reasons because they worked so hard and and just went at it like full professionals. So yeah, it was fantastic, mate. Just a great era. So when you came into it with the the you know, the conditioning, the training, they weren't doing that probably as much back in the 80s and 90s. So do you think that improved how they play cricket? Oh, 100%. And, and like, not only can you – like, I can see it and I, I watch the games now and I pick up who's been doing the right type of work and who hasn't, who's got their bowling loads up so they can keep their pace throughout the day. Who chases the ball to the boundary, you know, for 60, 70, 80 metres at full pace with good technique and saves runs and, you know, all those things add up over five days of cricket. And, and yes, 100% it's physically improved as we've gone on. The advent of T20 cricket, that sort of changed a lot of things because they're playing so many tournaments where they only bowl four overs in a game and, you know, they're getting paid a lot of money to do that. So they may not be keeping their bowling workloads up through that period and, and then you even go to a place like India, and this is how in-depth you go. Okay, we're in India at the moment. The grounds are beautiful grass covering, but underneath it's really hard clay, so the outfields are lightning fast. So that change of direction or agility off the mark in the field where that first 10 metres is critical, once the ball's passed, it goes for four. Whereas in Australia, you've got massive grounds. You've got to do your 80-metre ball chases. So you know, I can see if their techniques are falling apart sort of in that late part of the chase – 
high risk of injury, detrimental in performance. They're not saving many runs. They couldn't get to balls, you know, outfield catches that they have to run and dive for. So it, all those little facets of the game, heat tolerance, um, ability to hit the ball harder and further, you know, over the rope and into the grandstand now is, you know, critical in the short form. But, but yeah, the, if you look back at footage of the 80s, I mean, DK Lilly, he was the pioneer of, you know, though you had to train really hard, you had to do a lot of running, you had to do resistance training, you had to do all those things. He was way ahead of his time in the 80s and he was one of the few that, that actually put that, you know, they all worked hard, but, you know, he went, he was the professional before it was professional, you know. So, yeah, it's a, a massive change in the game, like every sport. They've all developed with sports science and with, you know, money coming into it. When there's money, there's, you know, want, everyone wants that money, everyone wants that fame. So they worked out they got to work really hard to be the absolute best consistently. So, so as an a, a elite cricketer, what, what the, is the main training that they would do? Is it, is it gym work, strength work, you know, or, or combination of the whole lot? Yeah, so it's a really interesting question. I've actually just done finished an online strength and conditioning course for uh, cricket coaches for bowling, and and that's the big point is look, they've got so many facets they've got to fit in. You know, one isn't more important than the other. Obviously, a fast bowler, bowling is the most important thing. Like like for you, if you're a surf swimmer, clearly swimming is is the key ingredient. Everything else there is to help you get better at the swimming. So it doesn't mean you. You cut out the swimming, or weights becomes more important than that. It becomes part of helping you get better at that. So, and with you know league, rugby league and AFL and and all these sports have got skills involved, but multiple uh, facets. So aerobically, you've got to be strong in cricket. We just talked about it. You've got to have really good agility, but specific to cricket. Then you've got to get your speed up, and then your sprint repeat. Um, your bowling endurance, your bowling speed, and then your weight training is going to help all that if you do the right stuff. Uh, and then you've got to get your recovery. And, oh, yeah, there's this other thing called skills. So it's a skills-based game. So they're the most important thing. So you can be the fittest, fastest, strongest you want, but if your skills aren't ready to go and um, to be implemented over and over again, it doesn't matter. You're not going to do well anyway. So there's so many facets to it. And then Flexible. You even look at range of motion. Jason Gillespie, who was a fast bowler, coach of the South Australian Redbacks at the moment, he was he had a really tight body. He had a horrible body and got the most out of it. But and it was really tight and had to do so much flexibility work. Where McGrath, same height, bowled around about the same pace. You know, they're both great bowlers, but he was hyper mobile, so he didn't have to do the mobility work that Diz had to do. And I used to say to him, in um, once again, we go back to. Got, was lucky enough to play at the same grade club and I go, uh, Pidge, Miss McGrath, can you just pretend to stretch down so everyone else does it? They see you not doing it. They go, well, McGrath doesn't have to do it. Why should I? <laughs> so, um, you know, they're all different and they all need different things. But like you saying, Bold, he's always trying to improve his speed. We were always trying to improve every facet of their game. And with fast bowlers, you see them come in and the impact on their legs and they – they bowl the ball. Like there must be that much stress on the on the legs, ankles, knees. Yep. Um, Brett Lee has had six ankle operations on his uh, front foot, and he's got roughly fifteen times his body weight going through the front foot on delivery. So it's only for a fra- and it's a minute amount of time. But we, uh, <laughs> I remember we the first time we had the biomechanical cameras. We got them once a year at the SCG and from the side. 
and from the front they were fixed. They're worth like two hundred fifty thousand dollars each. Now you can do it on your iPhone, and that slowed down to a thousand frames per second. You saw their foot land in the foothole, it twisted, and then they went over the top. And um, Huda, the great uh, Australian physio, Earl Alcott, he wouldn't let me show the bowlers the footage. He goes, "No, nah, they complain about their ankles too much already." So, yeah, and it's and it's not just a it's nice smooth landing they're hitting on. But, you know, they get little holes there from continually slamming down on the on that front foot. And even the back foot is massive ground impact. Um, and they're doing it, you know, 150 times a day. And if they hit that slightly wrong, you see Mitch Stark does it all the time. He'll hit one of the sides of foot marks. And you can see in his face, like I can pick up, there's this shooting pain that goes through his ankle. And he doesn't make a fuss about it. He just, you see it in his face, something didn't go right that ball. But they fill that. They're, they're made. It's rock hard compressed earth. They fill it with a um, between days a combination of clay and concrete, so that those holes are filled. So it's nice and smooth for a little while again. So you can imagine slamming down on that. Yeah, uh, Brett Lee with you know six ankle operations. I said five last interview, and he goes, "Jock, it was actually six. So his <laughs> shin was actually crumbling away." from the impact forces. So the pain they go through those fast bowlers and the, you know, they're, they're superhuman. Like I suppose all elite sportsmen are, you know, have got their pain tolerance, but those fast bowlers are something else. And the other thing too, test matches must be so tough on the body. You're out there, you could be out there all day and then suddenly, you know, you could be, the ball mightn't come to you that often. Suddenly you're just going to take off as fast as you can to chase the ball, but that couldn't be too good either. Yeah, and that's that's right. It's a test match. You know, they're pretty much seven hours in the field. They're meant to go for six hours, but they always go over time. Um, hot weather. Like I think they were saying it was 40 yesterday in, in India, but they said it was okay because the humidity was down. <laughs> so, but we've played in, um, in charge. I was 52 degrees and the humidity – I can't remember exactly what the humidity was, but it was quite high and blokes were dropping like flies. But – you're right, they, they've got to keep loose, they've got to keep warm. Every sort of five hours I used to get them to go through their, you know, some throws and loosen off their shoulders again because that's a real danger area if that gets cold and then you have to throw flat out because you might only get that, like you were saying, you might only get that one opportunity a day to get a run out or to take a catch and, and that's their concentration has to be up but their, their warm-ups and readiness. But, I, you know, a little story that comes to mind is uh, Mitch Johnson – who I did, a, I've got an app with, it's called Bowl Fit, it's for fitness training for, for fast bowlers. He bowled 54 overs in a in the last touch match of the summer in uh, Sydney against South Africa. His last over, he bowled Graham Smith in the second last over of the day to win that test. He bowled 54 overs in that match and his pace was still high 140s. So that just shows you that, and, and that's after five days, and then before that there was two days break, and before that there was a another test. So high risk of injury, high risk of drop in performance, but that's how well conditioned some of these guys are, and that's what I mean. I can see who's done the work, and I can see who hasn't. And Mitch had done the work, and he won the test for Australia because of all the hard work he put in from that previous year, and it all culminated in. You know, if you're 50 overs, six ball overs in the heat, on the, you know, we talked about that ground impact force over five days, just amazing performance. Well, do you think that you kept Glenn McGrath injury-free with all the stuff you're doing with him? Or, as you said, he didn't have to stretch as much as others. Was he naturally 
uh, sort of gifted in that way? Oh, just his flexibility and mobility. Pidge was naturally gifted in many ways, most of all in his brain. He was the smartest. As he said, he didn't have a – he said it wasn't a simple plan, it was an uncomplicated plan, but he was smart enough to stick to that plan and just be relentless with it. So his skill level was you – know, he, he could bowl upwards of 150 at his peak, but – he didn't need to because he was so good at what he did. He moved the ball. He could put on a pee. And, and for example, I was catching him middle of the winter. We were doing some bowling training down at Tonkin Oval, which is down at Cronulla. And he was just bowling. I was catching him with the mitt because no cricket wickets prepared. I made a mine was the groundsman. And anyway, I was a bit bored there just catching the balls. He just had to keep his workload up. So I put my keys down. I said, mate, you're meant to be the best in the world, which he was for, you know, well over five years. And first ball missed by like a centimetre, second ball, dink, on my keys. I picked them up and they're all bent. I went, I'm going to take them up, mate. You're ruining my keys. But, <laughs> but his skill level was unbelievable. The work we did with him, he was a really good worker already. He was really well conditioned when I got him. But I, I can't say, like they're still getting that impact forces. You, you can do your best with injury prevention stuff, but we're also pushing them to be the best physically they can. And there's a risk there. So we're trying to keep the injury risk down, but improve the performance. And by performance, I mean speed to the ball, pace pace of bowling, amount of balls they can bowl in a row at a similar or same pace, drop off of speed, all that sort of stuff. So 100%, I feel like I helped with him. But, you know, he was, mate, a full professional. So, yeah, I think anyone could have helped him. Yeah, I mean, that is a great side. Wasn't it? Well, what about Warney? I mean, there's always rumours out there that he didn't train that hard and, and things like that, or was he just totally just naturally gifted? Well, Warnie was a really interesting one. Everyone says that, and I worked with Channel 9 with him quite a bit, and he'd always, you know, say on commentary, oh, yeah, no, I didn't like doing that, and I'd be in the background, do you want me to tell the truth, Warnie? And he'd go, no, Jock, keep the myth going. Keep the myth going. But, mate, he was a beauty. I got him – when I started with the team, he had just injured his um, finger or thumb. He'd broken it, taking a catch. And so he was out. So I didn't have him for the first sort of three or four months. And he came back and the coach said, you've got to speak to Warney, got to get him moving. And, and I thought, look, I'm a young guy coming in telling the great Shane Warne, I know his personality. I'm not going to come in and tell him he's doing everything wrong. I'm going to work with him, get his confidence. And then um, so what I did was I said, mate, you, you're clearly not in your shape that you were. Let's just do everything else that the rest of the team does. We'll We'll introduce you gradually and we'll get you there. And um, anyway, I'd been working really hard with Brett Lee um, doing extra. He'd, he'd, had, he'd never played a full season of cricket, a professional cricket, without getting injured when I got him. And so I sort of went to him with, you know, what about we cut out alcohol? There's some good studies on injury prevention with that just for short periods. And he, he, he took it and he went for a full year. But he got, he got ripped. He got through his first season. And he, I remember him in the change room one day. He was just absolutely ripped and, he goes, Binger, what have you been doing? He goes, oh, just a bit extra training with Jock. He goes, Jocko, get over here. <laughs> and so once he wanted to work, to do it all and do extra, I knew I'd got him. And, you know, he dropped like he went from 210 millimetres on his skin folds down to the low 80s, which he'd never been before. He was getting 12 on the beep test. He was covering all the fitness targets that we needed to. And in, in his 100th test in 2002, he bowled 98 overs in the match and his arm speed was quicker than McGrath's. So it takes a lot of effort for that to get that energy on the ball through the crease. His energy was 
amazing. And as I said, his arm speed was faster than the grass. So he's putting in just as much effort through the crease. So, you know, Warney was the king, mate. He, he, his energy, and the Indian batsmen used to tell me, they said his energy from his last ball of the test to his first ball was the same. He, he was all over you and he was just the mad competitor, mate. He, you know, when, I remember when we played in that 52-degree heat, yeah, two of our fast bowlers were wilting in the sun, Bick and, and Binger, and, and that's Brett Lee. They were wilting and they want water, they want everything, and McGrath's going, oh, what does it matter? It doesn't make any difference. I'll just bowl. But Warney was the king, mate. He destroyed Pakistan in that, in that match and just, you know, even though he wasn't as fit as some of those fast bowlers, he just got the job done, mate. So, yeah, you won't, won't hear me saying much bad about the king. <laughs> And do you think Warney had the cricket brain as well? He could see what was going to happen and how to do it? Oh, well, mate, he's the best ever, isn't it? So he, the absolute superstars that constantly perform in that game, they have to be massively – call it cricket intelligence, just call it intelligence. Like Ricky Ponting was the same. You know, left school at 15 or 16. But as I say, don't ever uh, mistake lack of education with lack of intelligence, one of the smartest blacks I've ever met. So – and same, Steve Wall was the same, but Warney, yeah, he just, mate, the way he could read the game and the way he saw ahead and he's just a cricket enough. He just loved it, you know, to death. Watched a lot of cricket, knew everything about every batsman, you know, same as the other guys. So, yeah, the the stars, mate, they, were, they had fantastic cricket brains. Mate, how good was it being involved where you got the players to, to their peak but then watching them win the Ashes or, or World Cups and also, you know, one-day titles. How was that feeling for you? Oh, mate, it, it was – it's funny looking back at the time, you you know, it was fantastic, but because we won all the time, you didn't – it wasn't until we lost the odd series that you go, oh, oh, yeah, how much better is it to win, you know? Um, and I, I think the, the big highlights of that, you know, the World Cup, you know, it was a two years in the making – you know, they start building the team towards the World Cup two years out, you know, making changes, bringing new players. And and then it's for us as we're planning, okay, how do we get these guys here to peak, you know, with all these other tournaments. So you train through a, a couple of the weaker tournaments and just build towards it. And, and you know, Brett's a classic example that, you know, his goal was to bowl 160 Ks an hour. And we part of that was what I was get, alluding to before was getting in there injury free, being able to bowl, and in the last five games in that 2003 World Cup, he bowled his five fastest spells, and he hit 160 in the semi final. Wasn't the final, so we were just we were like four or five days out from peaking him, but he and and building through that tournament, he made such a big difference to our team. He, I think he was a leading wicket taker in the end and had some great spells. But yeah, mate, it just. Very, very satisfying, but just while you're in it, you're playing so many tournaments. The one in India where we first time, well, it's the only time we won in the last 50 years. You know, just the planning and preparation, the hard work. It's just, you're just super pumped for the boys. Like, you're satisfied because you've done your job, but you're more satisfied for them because they've worked so hard to get. Look, I wasn't nervous. It wasn't me going out performing. It's them. They're under the pressure, the constant pressure, the constant spotlight and yeah so just fantastic time and, and you didn't really realize how good it was winning ashes till we actually lost one um and the the public outcry and the 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 witch hunt and the you know all that came with losing an ashes series which we hadn't seen for years so you know um that really made you appreciate the wins that's for sure <laughs> well mate 
you said you were close to Glenn McGrath. The, the death of Jane McGrath, that, that must have had a massive impact on you as well. Yeah, and it still does, mate. Like, oh, you got me with that one. I didn't see that one coming, mate. <laughs> um, yeah, my wife was really close with Jane as well. And just give me a second. You're right, mate. It's- oh, I didn't expect that one. <laughs> um, yeah, they, and, and they just lived around the corner. They lived a kilometre or two away. Mel, my wife, Mel, used to take Jane for jogs. And, yeah, it was really tough, mate. My mother at the same time was going through breast cancer, so it was very, very difficult. Yeah, <laughs> it got me good. Uh, yeah, it was horrible to see Glenn go through that as well. The ups and the downs on tour. He didn't want to go on tour, but Jane wanted him to go on tour. And, you know, it was just, you know, just to see it all play out was, um, yeah, it was horrible. Well, mate, you then created and, and directed like the famous. Jane McGrath classic fun runs. He did then go on and do various events, raising significant money for the McGrath Foundation. So how was that? Did, did you feel as though that that's something you need to do? Yeah, we sort of, we didn't know what, like this was when Jane was still alive and we didn't really know what to do for her. So the council contacted uh, um, my company, Jogger Lady, to come up with an event on Australia Day. And I said, well, I've always wanted to do a sand race you know, and call it the Jane McGrath Classic. And as you know, Hoppo, the, in Surf Lifesaving, the two-kilometre beach runners, been in and around Surf Lifesaving for quite a while, but come into mainstream probably the last 15 or 16 years. And so they said, yeah, but you have to do it on Cronulla Beach or South Cronulla, which, as you know, is tiny. <laughs> and so they built us a little sand hill and, and we put it on and we had so many people come and Jane came and she loved it. And she goes, oh, will you do this again? You know, it was just really successful, really great fun day. We had a lot of the Cronulla Sharks boys came down and did a celebrity race and, you know, local people in the area. And and so it just, it started with that. And, you know, and then when Jane died, we, we did it. And that's when we had the most people there. We had like 500 people come to do that particular day and, you know, just walk, jog, whatever. Yeah, you know, we still, still organise it today. And it, it just, you know, I guess... I don't know, just something we feel like we want to do and so we keep doing it. Yeah, mate, great stuff. Now, I'll touch on some other stuff, which I hope it's uh, <laughs> – Yeah, bring it, bring it all on. <laughs> Might as well get it all out yes, now. Yeah. <laughs> well, mate, it's, it, the other sad part too, and it's recent, uh, yeah, your dad passed away recently, the death of Shane Ward, Rod Marsh, Andrew Simons, which you would have been – involved with all those guys as well, all in close succession. Just that must have been rock bottom. Oh, mate, it just it, like last year, I mean, COVID was tough for everyone, but COVID last year for us, like it was just nonstop. Like we, you know, and that's only half of them, like the ones that aren't famous or the, the you know, we, we had a, a girl that comes and runs sandals with us every Saturday. And we've, we've been taking sand hills for last, since 1990 or 1991 every Saturday morning. At seven o'clock, we and whoever wants to come comes. And this 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 one girl who was a friend's sister, she'd come for ten years and was like really outgoing and sort of seemed like a happy soul, but had had lots of issues injury wise. And um, she came to one Sandhills, and then that night, and she was really happy, and we gave her a lot of, a lot of time. She was always fascinated by all our athletes, and um, she committed suicide that night. And so it, it was just. That was really tough, but her sister sent us this message 
and said she's finally out of pain. She had a lot of mental issues and but she wanted to do Sandhills that, that day. Man, you've got me here. <laughs> um, you know, that was one of her favourite places and one of her favourite things to do. So, you know, I think I had nine, count it was nine close friends that, that died last year and, you know, last one being my father. But, you know, and, and even Rod Marsh, I'd forgotten the influence he'd had on my career when I was at university. Third year of sports science, you had to go and do your prac somewhere. Uh, and they wanted you to do a sporting team. There weren't many professional sporting teams in those days. It was early 90s. And, um, you know, I'd put my name down for the AIS and you had to go in the biomechanics department and it was three weeks and and there's something didn't feel right. But my my mum or dad, I can't remember which one, they had written a letter to Rod Marsh. He'd just taken over the Cricket Academy. Those days, you know, that would have, would have been a long process. Anyway, he rang my parents on the old landline and said, yeah, Jock can come down and, you know, he plays great cricket. You know, he'll fit in well. So I got to go down to the Cricket Academy, spend 10 days with Rod Marsh and, you know, in that in that particular intake was Adam Gilchrist, Kasper Witz, um, Kev Roberts, Stewie McGill, all these players that, you know, end up being superstars of our game. And, and But what it did give me was confidence that, oh, I'm not out of my depth here. It's, it's There's not a lot in sports science and, and strength and conditioning within this team. Like they were asking me for, and I was third year uni. So, you know, really go, and Rod really gave me confidence that, okay, I'm not out of my depth here. I could do something here and, and, and I'm on the right track. So it, it didn't, I didn't remember that until Rod died because I hadn't seen him for, you know, since then. You know, obviously he was a big part of Australian cricket. And Simo, what a, you know, that was a really tough one, Simo. You know, he was uh, still young and he had a young family and just, you know, full of life. You know, it was, you know, was really sad. Like, and, and the King, of course, like, you know, the King was very, very good to me. He's very good to a lot of other people as well, but, yeah, so yeah, some some tough times, and then then your dad and and I, I look back at dad. Dad got COVID Christmas Eve. They rang and and you know he wasn't too bad. And then Christmas Day they rang and said, "Oh, you better we were away. You better get up here. He's he's not going to survive this. We can't put him on the ventilator. He's ninety years old. He'd, he'd, if we we've got to anaesthetize him to do that, and that would kill him anyway because he's so weak. So." And then he sort of lasted for a week. So anyone thinks COVID's a hoax, it's a horrible way to see your father suffocate to death. You know, but he, but as I say to everyone, there's no tragedy there. He was 90. He lived a great life. We got him out for his 90th birthday to his golf club that he, you know, he was there with all his grandkids and was a great father, was a paediatrician, saved a lot of lives, you know. And so it, it, there's no – very, very sad, but – you know, Jane dying as a young woman, that's a tragedy. Dad dying as a 90-year-old, having a great life, that's a sad part of life. But, um, you know, we're just very lucky to have him for so long. Mate, just touching on the mental health side of things, you would have seen a lot uh, through sport and you mentioned that young girl that, that committed suicide. And, I mean, we get a lot of suicides as lifeguards because we cover the gap um, there at Bondi. So we get a lot of body retrievals. Do you think... Getting people into sport and training does help with their mental health. Well, I think so, mate. And, and in COVID, I really believe it. Like it, I mean, we know how good you feel after doing a session. Like if I miss a session, I don't like I, I'm annoyed. Um, so 
you know, we through COVID, we go, right, how do we help? You know, people are going to be, you know, when we're full lockdown, we just found a way through hell and high water to get sessions for our members and our athletes and keep them engaged, keep them, you know, I, I was taking Zoom running sessions. I didn't know how, how to go, but it was unreal for me to see all their faces on the screen, let alone them to see everyone and have a chat. And um, and then, you know, on a Saturday, Saturday Sandhills, I'd film the course the day before and put it up on our WhatsApp and go, right, here are the time slots. This pair's going off at, at 7, this pair's going off at 7.05 and they didn't have partners, I'd make sure they had one. And so they got to cross cross paths with each other and wave and they just said it was the only thing for a lot of the kids that kept them social, kept them engaged in things. So, you know, that really, you know, already knew how important it was for your mental well-being to be part of something and be part of something good and healthy for you and uh, motivating. And so with Jock Athletic, which is my company, you know, we've got elite athletes, we've got people that just run to keep fit, you know, world champions and they all sort of train in and amongst each other and it's just a really nice community. I think that's the most important part of it is having that, you know, it's like having your team, isn't it, team around you. you got your Bondi lifeguards. I see the support you guys give each other on on TV. Uh, also one of our old riches, uh, one of our old runners, Mitch Palmer, is over there with you now and he's he's a beauty So and he's a guy that needs that social connection and he's fantastic with it as well. We'll... We'll take him any carnival we can get him because he keeps all our runners relaxed and um, yeah. So yeah, I, I do, yeah, mate. No, I agree, it, and I'm sure you, I'm sure you feel the same. Yeah, no, he's, he, he, we do, and um, yeah, Mitch is going well. And well, tell us a bit more about Jock Athletic. How do people get involved and and come and uh, you know get coached by you guys? Well, it's interesting, um, Ricky. Ricky M from uh, North Bondi Surf Club. She started running with us, and now she's beating all my runners. So, um, but yeah, you, uh, we've got a website, Jock Athletic, and it's got all the information or you can follow us at, at Jock Athletic on Instagram. It's got all the information about, you know, we, we, we train, basically I've tried to bring what I learned from professional sport and put it around local athletes. And, you know, we've got several uh, players and with cricket, once they progress from us, they're in the professional setup. So Nathan McAndrew, um, Nathan Ellis, who's just been picked for the Australian One Day team, Garinda Sandu, you know, they're all our old players that came through our system and, and out there. And so is Lockie Ferguson, who's one of the fastest bowlers in the world for New Zealand. But then we've got, you know, we big in cricket. We're really big in surf life saving, uh, running particularly. Um, and Ricky from North Bondi over there, she's doing great things. And so we, we get people from everywhere and we can do them remotely or, you know, we've got about, we take about 20 running sessions per week with you know, all different, every day is different. We look after sprinters and, and particularly middle distance runners, whether that be track, surf life saving or cross country. Um, yeah, so there's probably our three men, sports, athletics, uh, surf life saving and cricket. Yeah, so come on, come on down, join us, join in the fun. Yeah, funny you say about beach sprinting. When I was young, I was, I was doing a lot of beach sprinting under 15s, under 18s, and we actually won for Bronte Surf Club and we actually won um, – the under 15s. Well, back in those days, we cadets and then there's juniors. Uh, the, we won the relay in uh, both those age groups. So that was uh, with my beach sprinting. But then I sort of, the ocean got me and I, I went went towards the Ironman and the ski paddling and, and uh, into the ocean. But, you know, I used to enjoy my running. But I was lucky I was more a natural runner. So it didn't take too much to get to a certain level. 
with a bit of training. Yeah, so and, that was always and that good crosses bit. it crosses over really well. Like so, I got a lot of the Ironmen from our club. I get them to go on the two by one k relay because the the crossover is really good. They can put out a really good one k rep. Um, and, and even in the juniors, your, your swimmers and your surf, your clubbies will do really well at cross country because it crosses over really well. But also in surf lifesaving, it was brought in because the, the most rescues I've ever done or first aids or whatever on patrol is being, I've had to run to them. You know, it's rare that I've, you know, I've only ever done one with Mitch Palmer actually in the water. And I'm thank God Mitch was there, <laughs> um, but yeah. So so it's it is a big part of actual surf rescue. You guys have got the vehicles now as well, but in the old days we didn't have vehicles or anything on the beach. You had to run to get. And I remember one of our run, great runners, Ali Najem, who's won five Australian two K beach t- run titles. He was at training, and I reckon in four weeks at training we did four rescues, and he was running. He's finishing a K rep. I said, oh, good, mate. That was three, whatever. And he just kept running. I go, mate, you can stop now. And he kept running and he's he's run up to run into the water and go out and hold a girl up while uh, Minnie, Minnie Allen came on his ski to pick this girl up because she was going under the waves. So I went, oh, okay, keep running. But there was another one the week before that where Ali was again coming back from a rep and there was a couple of, couple of kids and they were just starting to get in trouble. I'm going, should I go in? Should I? No, Ali's coming. Ali, in you go. So he finished his rep and I just sent him straight in. So very important to be able to run well if you're going to save lives. That's right. You need that. And um, by the age now, my bloody calves are going on <laughs> in the Achilles. And I, just, I was going in for a rescue around Christmas and my, um, my calf went on me getting across the sandbag. It's just tore the calf. And so, yeah. So what, what did you do? Did you still get the job done? Still got the job done. So... That was lucky I was deep enough I could then get on the <laughs> yeah. boards. So I didn't have to – because it's like someone just shot me in the leg. Yeah. I couldn't move. But uh, getting back out was a bit of a – I think the patient got out easier than I did. <laughs> yeah, that's a problem with their age, Hobo. It's, um, things don't work as well as they used to. No, no, they don't. They definitely don't. Mate, uh, also talking about people being fit, and I've noticed um, especially around Bondi, they're really, really fit people, but – then suddenly have a heart attack. And I see that a mate of yours, Peter Hatford, Hatfield, I think it was, had a heart attack and he was really fit. So what do you – and you're into that, you know, the, the training and conditioning. Is it worth people constantly getting checked even though they think they're yeah, fit? Yeah, 100%, mate. Like there, there's a new test now they do with dye and they can look at – see the plaque build up in your arteries and they're finding more and more that really fit uh, people in their middle age are getting having plaque build up regardless, even though they're not showing any blood pressure issues or um, cholesterol issues. And so they're sort of finding out what that silent killer is when people used to die of heart attacks and they didn't didn't have any particular reason for it to happen. So yeah, it's really critical. And and Pete Pete's a two time Olympian. Uh, he won a silver at the Commonwealth Games ten time. Australian decathlon champion, and he, but he still loves his running. And I've finally got him into into clubby stuff for the last three years. <laughs> but yeah, he was he was just sprinting up up doing some some beach sprints, which he he's been doing forever, and running up one of the short sandhills. And he fell over, and the girl that was filming was filming him and his daughter Casey, who's also runs runs for the Wanda Club. And she took the phone off uh, filming Pete to because she thought he'd just fallen over or done his hammy, but he'd actually. And I don't think it was a heart attack. It was a, an issue. We had to get a, a double bypass and – no, he had a faulty valve. That's right, faulty heart valve. Yeah. 
Anyway, he reckons he can be fitter now than ever because he's had it fixed and had a double bypass. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's as you say, mate, it's definitely important to get checked. And I'm actually going in. I got checked a couple of years ago and I'm going in again to get checked in May after the Aussies just to, just to be sure because we, we still push hard at training. We want to make sure that we're not going to damage something. or And they are finding more and more these, as I said, these fit, healthy uh, male and females with, with plaque buildup. Mate, uh, just on the, the beach sprinting and, and the uh, 2K runs, I wish the 2K run was around when I was doing all my running, but it wasn't <laughs> around those days. But has the training changed much? I mean, we used to do a lot of running, which was on a bit of a decline to get our leg speed up. I mean, it, what's changed these days? I haven't been around it. Well, well the interesting thing, Hobbo, is the research is, the latest research is proving what you just talked about. It's proving the same things that got proved like 30 years ago. But, yeah, that's sort of... So that's called assisted running. So whether you do toes or um, running down, slight downhills, and that's it, leg speed. So it, nothing's changed with how you improve sprinting, you know, technique obviously, but leg speed, the faster your legs can turn over with the same technique, the faster you go, but also stride length. So the more powerful you are per stride, the further you go without any change of technique. So you improve both of them you're going to get faster. So it's not rocket science. It's consistent work. It's periodizing your plan, I suppose, with the gym work, which is what's really changed and, and those intricacies. But, yeah, it's, it's still the same principles. Usain Bolt ran 9.5, how long ago, 15, 20 years ago? Still the fastest time. Times haven't been significantly coming down. Now, is that because, you know, the, the – Drug testing is far better now than it was 30 years ago, maybe. Definitely we saw a drop in, in times, you know, after, they, after that 88 Olympics. So, you know, it, it's very similar patterns. It's just more refining those and, and then recovery methods. And, you know, even with ice bars, you know, ice bars have been around for many, many years. And initially we used them after weight training, after running, after sport. And then, you know, worked out that just because it's proven in science doesn't mean it works for everyone because science isn't, doesn't prove it works for 100% of people. And so what if your run is the 10% of people? It doesn't help. You know, it aggravates. It, it doesn't enhance resistance training. So we've ordered after resistance training. Just those little things that they're working deeper and deeper in, within science to find out. But I, I'd like to take you back to the 2K. Yeah, that's – I was – Coach beach sprinting and beach flags and beach relays for many many years and and then this two k came in. It was always at the world titles, but but not all like not all every world title. And I think Trevor Hendy won one. Ollie Hoare, who won the Commonwealth Games, his dad won two way back when. And then all of a sudden, it just popped up in Australian surf life. So this is about an 06 or 05. And um, I coached all the runners at Wanda, and all of a sudden they said, "Oh, Wanda's won a gold medal in the running." I said. How could they? I'm the, I've got all the runners. We don't run till Thursday. They said, no, it's a new one, 2K. So, so mate, I, I pretty much changed once Zane Campbell, who was my Australian sprinter for Surf Life Saving, once he sort of retired, I went to my uh, business partner who was uh, Watto, who was a uh, coach as well. I said, mate, I want to take the distance runners now for a while. And ever since that, mate, I've just been hooked on taking the distance runners and, and, and this event, the 2K, which it's it just – I saw Harry's in the world titles in 06 and there was a sprint finish and from about 200 out, there was three of them gunning for the finish line and they all took different lines. So you didn't know who was in front. 
was the best finish in a race I've ever seen. They all collapsed over the line. Um, and I went, wow, what, a, what an event. So that's what really hooked yeah. me on this, this event. I think I saw that. Was that down in Melbourne, Victoria? Yeah, in yeah, Melbourne. Yeah. yeah, I was there. I was watching it because Harry's had that – he trained and he wanted to run miles and miles and miles days before doing a, a, a big race. And it'd always be fatigued for the race. And we finally kept him from not doing too much a few days before. And he had a, he actually, I remember him, he had a blinder. He came, he, he came home like, it was a bit longer, he probably would have won it. Yeah, it was a magnificent, and, and my girl had won, she'd run the, I think the women's, and she she got an upset win as well. So, and so, we, you know, I was really heavily invested in that race. And then seeing that, I'm going, oh, this, this is way better than training the sprinters. So, yeah. um, so and now I just, uh, you know, I do both, but, you know, my, my heart is right in yeah. with the distance runners. Yeah. Well, mate, that's great jock having you, mate, uh, having a chat, telling your stories. The cricket stories are great. The, the surf life saving stories, the clubbies, you know, I've grown up through the clubbies. So that's uh, great to hear the stories. It's good you're keeping uh, all the runners uh, training up and still going. So, and you're, you're going to, Race at all? You you off to the Australian titles? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I I do the two k myself. I've, I had a fell down some stairs. It's a, a tip for young people out there: don't <laughs> fall downstairs. And I ruined my back, and um, so I can't sprint anymore. But I do the one thing I can do is I can run on soft sand. It doesn't hurt it, and I can do the two k. And so yeah, I've I've been doing it for the last sort of ten years, and yeah, be doing it Aussies. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say I'm not at my best. I will give my best, and whatever I come out with is what I deserve. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's one, one of your boys actually over there in Bondi too, Brendan. He's um, yeah. he's in my age group, and he yeah, he's smoking it at the moment. So he got me got me good at state, beat me <laughs> by, by too far. Um, but yeah, mate, I, I love it. And I, just one thing on that, you know, you asked about cricket and surf. I was saying I played cricket till I was like 27, and I trained the Cotters, Simone and. Uh, Nathan Cotter, and yeah. they were gun iron men and women in those days when it was full professional, and they actually got paid more than what the cricketers do back in those days. And they told me about all the running events that surf life saving. So I stopped playing cricket in, when I was twenty seven, and I went down to my first carnival. I said to the coach, "Oh, what do I have to do?" And he goes, "Well, you don't have to do anything. You, you choose. You can do the sprints, you can do the flags. You've got to do the relay. That's the one thing you got to do." I said, "So I've been all over Sydney for ten years." have to be there an hour before the game. I don't get home till like 8 o'clock at night, 9 o'clock at night on Saturdays from Richmond and Parramatta and Penrith. You're telling me I can come down and choose whatever I want to do. He goes, yep. And I said, and there's girls here in bikinis. And he goes, yep. I went, oh, how long has this been going? I'm never going back to cricket. So, uh, mate, yeah, I, and I've been in love with surf life saving ever since. Just, um, you know, I like you. I love being on the beach. I had the opportunity to go to one of our runners was – in running in the Commonwealth Games, I, I just did a strength program but sort of brought her fitness back from pregnancy, Eloise Wellings, and she was going to Commonwealth Games in, I think it was Scotland back then, and there was the world title surf life saving in France. This is in 2014. And I, I had the choice of going to either, and I went, Ali's going to France. I can run in the 2K as well. It's on the beach. I'm going to the beach. Elsie will be fine. <laughs> She's got a million coaches. Um, so, yeah, I always uh, love all the locations we go to and, and just, you know, training on the beach, how good. Yeah, mate, it's a great sport being on the beach. It's uh, unbelievable. Mate, at the end of the uh, interview, I'd throw out uh, my segment, Five Fun Facts. So I'm going to throw some questions at you now. Yeah. 
even though I've hammered you with the questions during the interview. <laughs> well, these will be easier, mate. <laughs> mate, uh, the first one, what are the best or, and worst purchases you ever made? Well, mate, every time I buy a grind coffee, that's that's the best. See, <laughs> see it says there, I'm number yeah. one. means I was first to their, the opening of their new store in 2021. Oh. Oh, we have a contest to see who can be there first. Every time I buy a grind coffee, that's a good purchase. <laughs> Worst purchase, I was thinking about this, mate, I don't buy much, so um, I'm on the beach all the time. But in 2000, no, 1983, I went to my first blue light disco. I wore a pink Lacoste shirt and yellow pants, long pants. <laughs> I wondered why no girl ever talked to me there, but I thought I was so cool. So that has to be my worst purchases. <laughs> Jeez, I wish I'd get a photo of that. <laughs> yes, I'm glad that there was no social media back then. <laughs> Just imagine Goro getting hold of that photo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he wears that sort of stuff now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, mate, the be- best country in the world to watch cricket. Yeah, this is a good one, mate. They're all fantastic. I mean, I, I love India, watching it in India because every ball is an event. Like Steve Smith said the other day, every ball something's happening and is important to the test match. Um, so I love the cricket in India um, and it's always nice and warm. Uh, England is just amazing too, this, the sound. Every ground's different to the sounds in Australia. But, of course, you can't go past Australia, mate. Um I'm very biased, but I love those three. Are probably my favourite, and South Africa's good. New Zealand's—they're all good. <laughs> oh, West Mate, Indies, West Indies, Barbados. I'm going to say Barbados. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to go there. I, I know uh, Chris Gale. I catch up with him every now and again when he's in Australia, and that's one place I want to. Uh, it's on the yeah. bucket list. Go over there Mate, and watch cricket. Go over there with the king of the West Indies too, Chris <laughs> Gale. Yeah, you can't go wrong. Mate, what are you most proud of? I saw this one, mate, and I, it's it's a it's a tough. One. I'm going to go three different things. Professionally, is I'm happy, I'm proud that I didn't chase money. I chased what I really wanted to do, and I was just lucky that you know money came into cricket, and I could make a living out of doing what I loved, uh, and that allowed me to do all the stuff with the surf lifesaving and athletics that you know you didn't get paid for in those days, and, and but it it gave me that opportunity. So that's. That's one I'm really proud of, and I got that from my dad. And probably in cricket would be the World Cup, the Indian Tour, which we talked about, getting Brett Lee to bowl 160, and um, you know Matt Hayden being able to you know score massive scores in the heat and humidity just from all the hard work he did. He got the world record of 380. So in cricket, they were pretty special, and and I think um, in surf lifesaving will be the 2018 World Titles, where in the endurance events there were eight eight events and we won one-to-one all eight of them with my runners. So I was pretty pumped about that. I don't think I can beat that. And then, you know, probably family-wise, I gave up touring to be more around my sick mum and not be away so much and then gave away working for Channel 9 and touring with with cricket more to be around my family and and help them grow up. So I'm, I'm really proud that I chose that over, you know, the – personal, you know, improvements or, or, or personal goals of my own. So, yeah, uh, so, so they're probably my most proud things, mate. Mate, what's the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? Yeah, well, this is a good one. I've seen a lot of great things this week. Um, we had the state Surf Life Saving State titles last Saturday and uh, one of my girls, she's only 15, she won the under-17 2K and backed it up 20 minutes later to win the Opens, which has never been done before. Even the great Ollie Hall didn't do that one. 
Um, and she's unfortunately she's from the wrong club, uh, which is North Cronulla, but we won't <laughs> hold that against her. And also Emma Blanche, one of my girls who also works for for us, she did the two by one in the morning and, and won the opens. And then that afternoon she did the race walk at State Athletics and came third because um, she had to do that as part of a Sydney Uni scholarship. So that was pretty good. And then my little Jets last night, my little, uh, I'm not allowed to call them little anymore because they're 11 now, they're not little anymore. All five, five or six of them went and did a track meet last night and they all PB'd. So uh, they're great little kids and they just love it. So they're the most interesting and enjoyable things I've seen this week. Great stuff, mate. Now the last one, what song do you have to sing along with <laughs> when you hear it? Mate, I, as you can tell, I like talking. Songs, <laughs> uh, one of the girls at training the other, Sienna Alderson or Hesha as we call her, she asked me, what's your favourite song of all time? And I went, oh, that's unfair. And she goes, yeah, that is unfair. I'll take that back. You can't just pick one. So I'm going to rattle off a few. Romantics, um, What I Like About You. Uh, the drummer was actually the lead singer, so that's very interesting. The Fooies, Foo Fighters, Everlong. In Excess, I Need You Tonight or Don't Change. Kiss, Shandy, um, or I Was Made For Loving You, of course. And then a band that is called the F- Ice House now was originally called The Flowers, and we can get together. Come Said the Boy by Mondo Rock, I think. Watermelon Sugar by Harry. Um, anything by Coldplay, really. But Adventure of a Lifetime was played at one of the funerals I went to last year and I thought that was unreal. You 2 Enrique, Kylie Minogue, and the one that was our theme song for world titles this year um, was Ecstasy. It was an Italian song by Fred De Palma. So there you go. Pick one of them. What a great (laughs) list. That's a great song list. (laughs) I'm going to put it in a song list right now, actually. Yeah, I'm going to get Goro. Next time you catch up with him, you have to sing every single one to me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, mate, it's uh, Jock. It's been great, mate, uh, having you in. Uh, What I'll uh, be good to catch up one day, you know, we'll get over to Cronulla and catch up for a beer. Yeah, that'd be awesome, mate. And thanks for having me. And as I say, mate, I didn't uh, understand. Who was uh, Goro said? I've just told my mate that you'd be in for a podcast, and <laughs> you get a lots of these requests. And I go, I always go, yeah, whatever. And I didn't realise it was you, mate. So it's a <laughs> pleasure to be on, and feel honoured to be on your your show, and love what you guys are doing at Bondi. No, thanks, Shot. I'll catch up soon, mate. Awesome, good one. See you, buddy. Now let's go to Beach Banner. This week in the Beach Shack, we've got Chapo and uh, a few of us at work as lifeguards have grown up at Bronny over the years and uh, Chapo's one of them. So welcome, Chapo. Yeah, thank you. Mate, uh, tell us about growing up at Bronny. We've, uh, a lot of us have done down there and just give us a bit of an insight on uh, what it was like. Oh, look, um, I went to Bronte school. So I, like you said, grew up at Bronte. Oh, it's a wonderful place to grow up. Like, feel like I'm very lucky to um, grow up in such a place. It's a it's a small beach. It's a small beach located just south of south of Bondi. It, it kind of gets overshadowed a lot by Bondi. Like nobody really, well, not nobody. A lot of people don't know of Bronte. So you got to kind of not get caught out too much to say that you're from Bondi. I've said it a few times and it doesn't go down too well with my mates. And um, the guys from Bondi are from Bondi. So we we can consider our guys or ourselves Bronny guys, I suppose. And we're just around the corner and 
yeah, it was it was a great way to grow up. We kind of had a great group of um, friends. It was all all centered around surfing. All we wanted to do was surf, and as we we got older, we wanted to do everything else as well as surf, and just got stuck into the party scene. Got stuck in with our mates and going out and all the girls and all that kind of stuff. But um, at the core of that and the essence of it all was surfing and and um, we'd go down every day. You didn't want to be anyone else, anywhere else in the world. You just wanted to go down to the cubes, hang out with your, you know, what was like kind of eight really close friends. And within that eight group of friends, there was another eight that were two years older than you and then another eight that were two years older than them. And so it kind of went right up. And, um, and it still does. It's like um, a lot of the beaches on the east coast of Australia, there's these tight little crews and it's, just, it's like, you know, by the time you grow up, there's like, I don't know, 100 of you. And um, Bronny is very much like that. It's got this real strong local localism, which isn't always great. I suppose kind of looking back on it all, like we lived a pretty sheltered little life down there at Bronte, but it was all kind of revolved around surfing and, you know, guys from my little group or guys that I hung out with, one in particular went on to become a pro surfer and have a very, very big career and still does on the WSL and, you know, Tom Whitaker and Kobe Graham and Azza Graham, they were two guys my age and they were some of the best lifeguards that we've had had down the beach and, you know, as has gone on to have a very successful pro guarding career, which he does jobs for Red Bull and he's doing amazing stuff in that in that professional area. So, you know, I was looking up to these guys in the water, basically. Luke Hitchings is another one that, you know, had a pro surfing career and they would just go out eight foot and just charge and it was just like, holy crap, like, Bronny's eight foot. We got to go out, and there was me and Robert and Bagus and um, Cam, Lurch, Jamie, Tom, and Kobe. We'd just all have to go out with like Azza, and that's kind of held me in good stead for this job. That's for sure. Like um, I'm still really scared of the waves when they get to eight to ten foot, and Bronny in particular can be really scary. But I just remember when I was like fifteen, fourteen. 16 like you'd see Azza and that out there and it'd be just we've got to go out and he was petrified and there was no one else out there except for our little crew and yeah that that was kind of a part of growing up at Bronny that whole kind of culture and thank god it was kind of surfing whole surfing element was in there that kind of kept us I suppose connected to the ocean and what led me to working down at, you know, the beaches and I work at Bronte obviously as a lifeguard. So I'm still doing that to this day, which, you know, looking back, like I didn't really dream of being a lifeguard. I didn't really even see it coming. And now looking back, I wouldn't have really wanted to do it any other way. And do you think, as you said, that, you know, Bronte's an area where it does get quite solid waves and, you know, when I was growing up, it pretty much people, the old guys used to say, if you can handle and surf at Bronny, you can pretty much go anywhere around the world. Yeah, look, you know, that was very evident with with the, the boys that I just mentioned, you know, they did, they went on and 
had major surfing careers all around the world and you know like like I get scared in big waves and I don't you know obviously I'm not in that echelon with some of the guys that you've met along the way like your clipper and you know some of those crazy crazy ocean men but you you understand what they do and you can understand how scary it is and you you know you you will kind of rub shoulders with them without kind of you know pushing it to the limits that they do which is you know beyond me but you know you know that fear that's associated with it and Bronte gives you that background and even like these eastern beaches they get super dangerous when it's like 10 to 12 foot and yeah we've all had got stories of when it's big and you know that definitely has held me in good stead with the lifeguarding career in terms of all the stuff that I have to do in the water I'm pretty confident you know, learn to ride the jet ski reasonably well now and, you know, you go out when it's big and, yeah, it's all a part of it and that's what I love about lifeguarding. Well, thanks, Chapo, mate, for stopping in and uh, having a chat. Sweet as. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbag is from... Caroline, and she's from Melbourne. When is uh, Bondi Rescue coming back on the TV? Well, Caroline, we've uh, just finished filming season 17 this summer. We haven't got an exact date yet when it will be back, but I think at some stage after Easter, probably the mid to the end of April, uh, should be back on TV. So look out for that. It, uh, the promos will be coming up over the next uh, couple of months and then uh, Back on air for another year. Thanks, Karen, for your letter, and I'll catch you all again next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.